Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined today by Nicholas Eberstadt, who is at the American Enterprise Institute, and he is the author of Men Without Work, post-pandemic edition, which is a, a reissuing, an updating of a very important book that came out before the pandemic called Men Without Work. And it was about the issue of worklessness among men in America. Nicholas, first off, the jobs figures in America seem to be almost preposterously good at the moment. Uh, the Biden administration likes to boast about them. The Trump administration also boasted about them. But you suggest that it's disguising a bigger crisis of worklessness. Can you explain to us what we're not seeing? Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me on. Our employment statistics in the United States were constructed, devised to fight the last war. The last war was the Great Depression. The Depression era mentality, which created the framework of our employment statistics, couldn't conceive of the possibility that able-bodied men wouldn't be in the workforce if they could possibly get a job. And so our employment statistics today look at the number of men who are out of work and looking for a job in comparison to the total number of comparators in the workforce. They don't look at the dropouts. They don't look at the people who have decided neither to work nor to look for work. And over the past half century, this has turned out to be an invisible but steadily growing crisis in the United States. From the mid-1960s to the present, it's been almost a straight line upward, the exit from the labor force of the men not in labor force, NILF called sometimes. So that as we are talking, the actual employment rate, the work rate for prime age men, maybe the most important category of the uh, male workforce, the 25 to 54s, the work rate for prime age men is a little lower than it was at the beginning of 1940, which you'll recall was still at the tail end of the Great Depression. So we have a depression scale problem for uh, the collapse of work for men in the United States that's not generally been appreciated or even commented on. And the reasons for the decline in male, prime age male working, is it all to do with uh, well-known factors of the decline of industries that require male attributes and so on? And has the pandemic made that worse for men or has it been bad for worklessness for both sexes? Well, you've, you've asked critical questions. The received wisdom, I think, on your side of the Atlantic and mine, is that economic and structural change are the drivers of these big transformations. And, of course, there's truth to that, to the decline of manufacturing, the role of trade, outsourcing, decline in the demand for less skilled work. All of that's true. But that isn't the entire story, and I don't think, in the United States at least, that it's even most of the story. Remember I just mentioned that the retreat from the labor force was almost a straight line upward. If economic and structural change were the dominant force here, 
you'd see a big bouncing around in good economic times and bad economic times. You can't even tell when recessions took place looking at this half-century retreat. So there are other things that are going on. I think deep, important, troublesome things that are going on. And unfortunately, since the eruption of the pandemic, we seem to witness in the United States a spread of what we might call the men without work syndrome to some other groups that didn't seem to be so affected before the pandemic. As you know, in the United States, we've got a labor shortage at the moment. We've got 11 million unfilled jobs. This during a time when there's more bargaining power on the part of workers than it's been in my lifetime. That's the great resignation, right? Mm. We have 4 million fewer persons in the workforce than we would have expected on trend. And this is not mainly more men without work. This is the new face of worklessness in the United States. A large proportion are people over 55, who interestingly enough in the States were the single uh, ray of sunshine in our employment tableau over the last generation with rising work rates, rising participation rates. We're also seeing, I think, some, maybe some troubling signs for younger women as well. It's quite strange for a British person, or for Europeans, I imagine, to hear Americans talking about this, because I think we associate America as being built on the Protestant work ethic at one level, and then also we think that America doesn't actually have a social safety net for workless people. But are those both misconceptions? Well... I think you can probably tell me uh, how strange Americans are better than I can tell you. <laughs> but one of the peculiarities about people in the United States, even though our society is quite affluent, Americans who work, work a lot. Despite our high levels of living standards, let's say, Americans at work spend more time on their job than any Western Europeans, than Canadians and Australians, more than the Japanese. So there certainly is a, a driven, healthy work ethic in much of our society. At the same time, there may be no place in the Western world where the dropout levels for prime age men are as high as in the US. The only competitor from international statistics would be Italy. And I honestly don't believe the Italy statistics since there's so much moonlighting there. I'm not sure that they're entirely accurate. Mm. So there is something strange and to me troubling about what has been developing in the US. As far as social safety net programs are concerned, I'd mention two points. The first is that you can, you can arrive at some pretty destructive disincentives, even with relatively modest blandishments. I think we have done that in the United States with our archipelago of disability programs, mm -hmm. which were originally obviously intended to help people who couldn't work and now provide a sort of an exit ramp for a work-free lifestyle for too many, too many people. The other was we, we spent an extraordinary amount of resources on our pandemic emergency rescue. We succeeded in 
avoiding the second Great Depression, which was mainly what pulling out all the monetary and fiscal stops was intended to do. But the bigger the intervention, the bigger the unintended consequence. And by erring on the side of overshooting during the crisis, Uncle Sam put an extra two and a half trillion dollars of borrowed money in people's pockets, a sort of a uh, COVID policy uh, lottery ticket. And I think part of what we are seeing now is people spending down some of the wealth that they unexpectedly uh, received during this emergency and tragedy. Are we still seeing an uptick in deaths of despair, which are connected to um, the worklessness crisis? It depends entirely on how one defines deaths of despair. Yeah. Familiar a phrase coined by economists Anne Case and Nobel laureate Angus Deaton, they meant deaths of despair to include suicide, drug poisoning, cirrhosis. It's a pretty good definition. Deaths from drug poisoning are unfortunately still reaching new heights. There's a whole additional category of deaths that we might also keep in mind, which are deaths from cardiovascular disease, CVD, heart attacks, strokes, and the like. I'm afraid that the picture is a little bit too close for comfort to what has been going on in first the Soviet Union and now in Russia with elevated CVD deaths from, in their case, alcohol poisoning. We're mm. doing a lot better job, fortunately, with fentanyl and other, other analgesics, if we call them that. But so, yes, this during the COVID crisis, we had an uptick not just in COVID deaths, but also in other deaths, including drug-related deaths, unfortunately. And, I mean, I suppose perhaps a slightly reactionary way of looking at this is to think that what we might be seeing is, is a society in entering into quite extreme decadence and that the worklessness when there is available work, the increase in uh, deaths of despair, drug use and so on, suggests a society that is sort of in decline and spoilt in some ways in the sense that it is possible to live a life without work and therefore to become so apathetic that you end up dying from it? Well, unfortunately in the United States, I think that our intelligentsia and our academy and our policy circles have not just learned lessons, but forgotten important lessons. And one of the most important lessons that has been generally forgotten concerns the distinction between poverty and misery. And this was a distinction that was self-evident to your Victorians. Mm. And it was, I think, probably self-evident to men and women on the street in both of our countries a century ago. But it is possible to have, historically speaking, high standards of living and still to be mired in uh, vice and misery and despair. And in some sense, the new misery that we see in the United States today couldn't be afforded by a country that was less fantastically prosperous than we are. It wouldn't be possible to afford to have one in eight prime age men not even in the workforce. It, it wouldn't be possible to maintain this sort of a disability archipelago 
to support a dysfunctional family structure that has been developing. There's many different aspects of it. So we can see this as a sort of an unexpected consequence of the great success of our economic ascent. We touched on Protestantism earlier, but is it too a post-Christian loss of a sense of the intrinsic value of work? I I think indisputably. I think indisputably that's the case. And again, just as we in the States and maybe on your side skate over the distinction between poverty and misery, we also misuse the word leisure. We misuse the word leisure when we mean free time. And free time does not have to be used for elevated purposes. Another way of describing free time can be idleness and sloth. And there is a whole Christian history about the concept of sloth. Mm. It can be scandalous. It can cause sin for others as well as oneself. Trying to be sufficiently elevated as to rise above the moral implications of worklessness is a pretty modern or postmodern thing to aspire to. But it also means you're going to miss some things in the real world, I'm afraid. And to what extent does technology hasten this decline in, in the work ethic? I, I know the parts of the left now get excited at the prospect of fully, fully automated luxury communism, where sort of nobody will have to work and we can all just spend our, our lives on screens. That is made possible by technology, is it not? Of course. And it's certainly true that as human productivity increases... In theory, we need to do less and less time at work to fill our various needs and wants. But the funny thing is, it hasn't really worked out quite the way that Keynes imagined in his economic possibilities for our grandchildren back in uh, 1930. It's a remarkable essay. It's, It's a brilliant essay. In the depths of the Depression, he said, look, folks, our children and our grandchildren are going to be vastly richer than us. I mean, that was a pretty, uh, that was a pretty bold thing to say, given the despair at that time. Mm. And he was right about that. What he wasn't quite right about was his completely reasonable vision that by more or less today, as we chat, that people in our countries would be working 10 or 12 hours a day and trying to figure out what to do with all of their time. In the United States, at least, We have this situation where a large number of people are choosing to work 40, 50, or more hours a week, and another large number of people who are of working age are working no hours a week. We've got a situation where even though free time is a luxury good, and you'd imagine that the more well-to-do would have more free time, The higher you go on the income scale in the United States, the more hours people clock in. So, yes, of course, it makes total sense that we'd have this technological transition, but we might have thought we already would have seen some of this. And the facts on the ground, at least in the States, don't entirely comport with that. I'd also like to talk a little bit about whether you think that that there's a lot of talk about the the sort of imminent crisis facing Western economies at the moment, Mm -hmm. the inflationary spiral and so on. It's perhaps getting slightly better in America, but still very much with us in the UK and Europe. 
I wonder sometimes if since 2008, the crash of 2008, possibly before, there is a sort of almost a subconscious lust for some kind of major economic crisis that will be like a jolt that will force us back into re-embracing the serious work ethic across society. Do you think there's a bit of that going on? It's hard for me to tell if something like that is going on. I mean, there's always a bit of apocalyptic chatter in the United States, but, you know, that's part of our specific heritage as well, as you know. (laughs) I don't think that I can, that I myself can tell whether this is becoming louder and more serious or not. Mm. There's a great deal of anxiety in the United States especially among younger people. People my kids' age and younger than my kids are scared in a way that our kids and my generation really never were in this kind of like deep metaphysical angst sort of way. And sometimes it seems like they're scared of their own shadows. I mean, that's a little bit different from the apocalyptic, I think. Mm. And there's also a severe severe decline in trust in institutions in the United States. That's quite worrisome to me. Part of that, I think, is because people are increasingly disconnected from basic institutions of life, including the institution of work, including, as you were indicating, family and religion. Now, it may be possible to stumble along to even greater prosperity based on new discoveries and technological innovation in a world without trust or confidence. But it's, um, it, it's a pretty dystopian picture, isn't it? Yes. Well, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, that's what atomization is the word mm-hmm. people use for it a lot. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering mm-hmm. if there is also a, there's a combination of conservative-minded people and more progressive-minded people coming together because they both agree there's something very wrong, whether it's on the left, you think it's that the global financial system is evil and only benefits for the ultra-rich, or whether it's on the right, you think that you know the modern economy doesn't work for hard-working people. And they both kind of come together in a way that suggests that something has to break. Yeah, there's, well, certainly we see more, more right populist skepticism of the global financial and trade order. And there's, there's always been a distrust of the global financial and trade order on uh, at least parts of the left. One of the reasons, I think, that there's increasing distrust of the international arrangements in the United States because they haven't delivered terribly well for the bottom half of our country since the end of the Cold War. There's a jet in the background. The apocalypse has started behind you. Off to Ukraine. (laughs) If you take a look at the net worth of the bottom half of American households, on the eve of the pandemic, it was no higher than it had been when the Berlin Wall came down. And so it's not entirely irrational for a lot of Americans to ask, who won the Cold War? What exactly uh, was I supporting all these decades? (laughs) And I am afraid that neither of our major political parties has a very good answer to the question of how do you repair the escalator 
so that there's a working formula for prosperity for all. The progressives think you can redistribute your way to prosperity, and people on the right think maybe, some of them think maybe you can free market your way there. It has not worked terribly well for over 30 years in practice. There are certain things that government cannot do and probably shouldn't try to do. One of our big problems in the United States has been the fracturing of the family. If we had the same sort of family structure profile that we had 30 years ago, we'd be in much better shape in a whole lot of areas. Likewise with religiosity. As you know, we've had a plummeting of religiosity, Mm. especially among younger Americans. It's it's no coincidence that the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E, has coincided with this explosion of anxiety among our young people. So there are certain things that government probably can't repair. We have to rely upon civil society or faith or our little platoons, as your Burke used to say. But neither political party has really done a serious job, and they certainly haven't done a good job of addressing these basic problems. Well, let's talk a bit about how the pandemic changed things, and you address this in your new book, because... What's often said about the pandemic is that it accelerated existing trends, but it also disrupted things completely, such as what you were just talking about, the the amount of wealth possessed by the lower half of society. That, that has changed quite significantly as a result of the pandemic, has it not? Yes. Yes. Well, during the pandemic, most improbably, income levels, spending levels, and personal savings levels went up during a national economic crisis. As far as I know, the only national economic crisis in which this has ever ever happened. Uh, And the reason for this, of course, was that the the government pulled out all the stops to bring us back from from the abyss of possible economic collapse with lockdowns. The wealth for wealth holders increased dramatically in 2020 and 2021 by maybe 30 trillion dollars with a t that's a lot of money but even for ordinary american households savings rates more than doubled in 2021 and 2020 because a fire hose of transfers was being shot at Americans, at ordinary Americans. There's so much government money being put in their pockets that they couldn't spend it all. Mm. So at the end of 2021, American households had accumulated two and a half trillion dollars more than we would have expected if just the pre-pandemic trends had kept in place. Mm. Now, a fair amount of that money went to the bottom half in terms of wealth holders in our society. And if you were if you were in a group where you were in your 50s, let's say early 60s, and you had accumulated a net worth of $25,000, these transfers would have doubled your net worth. Might have made you feel pretty prosperous. Mm. might have made you think that maybe it's a good time to get out of the workforce for a little while if you've been working hard all your life. I think we've seen a certain amount of that since the pandemic recovery. We've seen a disproportionate number of older Americans 
out of the workforce who wouldn't have been out of the workforce before the pandemic. There are a lot of different reasons that they could be out. I mean, some people may have you know, long COVID. Some people may be taking care of others, not just COVID, but opioid addictions, other sorts of afflictions. There may be some bias against older workers. There may be. But I think an awful lot of this is a sort of a unexpected wealth effect mm. from the enrichment that so much of our population experienced, paradoxically, during the COVID pandemic. Have you also noticed uh, or been able to observe in your studies a shift in the relationship between employer and employee? Because we obviously have uh, we've had a lot of working from home. I think it's more of a middle-class phenomenon in Britain, but workers are, are becoming far more demanding about where they work from, having more control over their movements and so on. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed that in what you, you've been looking at? Sure. You don't need to be a nerd to know that this is going on <laughs> in the United States. <laughs> Everybody sees it all around them. I mean, it's uh, quite apparent. I mean, the the fascinating paradox, though, Freddie, I think, is that we're living through this phase which has been called great resignation in the states and workers have more bargaining power today than as i say than at any time that i can remember Mm. and yet we have 11 million unfilled jobs with employers you know begging for applicants practically screaming for applicants and with a lot of uh, bargaining power on workers side and still we have fewer workers in the workforce than we would have had on trend before. I mean, we've, we have a sort of a natural experiment of sorts going on. And the natural experiment is telling us that the market is not solving this problem. Markets can solve economic problems. Markets cannot cure social pathologies. What we're seeing is not a miracle of the market answer to this question. I mean, for example, we probably have we probably have a shortfall of a million about in immigrant workers over the last few years. Like everything else, migration was disrupted in the United States. And there are big arguments in the US about whether immigrants were taking native born Americans jobs. Well, they weren't there for they haven't been there for two years anyhow. And we didn't see a big increase and upsurge in work rates for Americans. By the same token, we did see a big increase in labor force participation in the U.S. after the more or less unconditional $600 a week, then $300 a week pandemic unemployment benefits ended. Before that, there was much weaker response than after. So we see certain amounts of certain market responses, a certain sort of logic that we'd expect. But for reasons that I don't think entirely have to do with big economic forces, there are a lot of people who haven't been drawn back yet into the workforce. Finally, Nicholas, let's try and not uh, despair too much. Uh, what are the grounds for optimism? Or do you think America needs some sort of spiritual revival to rediscover the moral importance of work and a, and a fulfilled life? Well, one of the big peculiar features of American history, as you know, has been the 
episodic eruption of uh, religious awakenings, of great awakenings. My much better half, Mary Eberstadt, says she'd even settle for a small awakening. And that probably would help as well. We can't tell or know when or if such a change in consciousness may occur. We can hope that it will. While we are waiting, there are certain things that we all can do to make uh, the situation and the prospects better. In the limited realm of government, we could do much better job in imparting skills to our rising populations. It is a scandal that people graduate from school without a marketable skill. That happens all too much. We could reform or even, dare I say, tear down and start from scratch in rebuilding a a social welfare system that has a work-first principle in it, even if it were slightly more expensive, uh, the social benefits, I think, would be very positive. We can start to cast a spotlight on the 25 million Americans who have felony convictions in our background. We are very different from our European cousins in this regard. We have an enormous number of people who are disadvantaged by their what's happened in crime and punishment in the United States. And even if some of the people will be recidivist, there are many people who can be drawn back into society. And we have to recognize that there is a non-economic, non-pecuniary benefit to work. It isn't all dollars and cents. I mean, as, as you know, and I know, and other people who have been in the game know, work is a service to others that helps complete you. It helps fill your personhood, and it makes it easier to connect in other sorts of ways as well. I think that a better, a better set of habits in work would have enormous spillover effects in family, in society, dare I say, in religion. And all of these, I think, would help repair and heal our wounded society at the moment. And you don't need government for that. That can happen in our own little communities. So I think there is actually a lot of hope. Nicholas, it's been a great honour to have you on. Please carry on your, uh, your work, which is very important work. And thanks again. Thank you for inviting me, Freddie. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. Thank you.